So, whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, whether we want to admit it or not, we as individuals and as a society are in a liminal moment. We're in this collective moment where our normal routines and rhythms are just out the window. And we find ourselves in unfamiliar territory. Scholars call this entering into a liminal space. Liminal comes from the Latin word that just means threshold. It's, it's, you have what was and you have what will be, which you don't really know, but you're in this middle. You're in this middle ground, which Cameron preached on last week, that Jesus is in the middle. Liminality has the idea of being an unfamiliar territory. The old has suddenly been interrupted, and the new is unclear and uncertain. The idea of, of liminality uh, became popular among anthropologists in the early 20th century, where they're studying, in sub-Saharan Africa, they're studying these tribal rituals, these rites of passage for young men. Uh, and and, and pr- part of what happened was, these young men, around age 13, they had primarily only been with the women. And then they're, they're thrust into the wilderness, into the bush. And they, they, they have to learn how to survive. And, and, and not all do. But they have to learn how to, how to figure it out, how to hunt. Once in a while they'll get coaching from the older men in the evenings. But they have, they're, they're on their own. They don't know when this season's going to be over. They don't know when they're going to they're gonna finish. But at some point, whether it's in a month or two months, sometimes up to six months, they come into manhood. They figure it out. The, the, the men of the tribe welcome them in in this massive rite of passage and they're, they're welcomed into to what's now the, the, what it means to be a man. So that, that's where the idea of liminality was kind of really popularized in, in scholarly circles. But it applies more broadly, again, to this idea of disorientation. And we're familiar with this script, right? We see it in movies all the time. We have uh, a situation of normality or orientation, of, of things, are, things are normal, and then something happens that upsets that. And the actors are propelled into an unknown space, or called disorientation. Uh, and eventually, they come back together and form some sort of uh, solution and get back to what's now a new normal, which we've heard this phrase again and again. That's called reorientation. So we have uh, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. We're in that middle, that middle space, and on one level, our lives are, are actually filled with liminality. They're filled with this in-between. Uh, but but on, an, on a particular level right now, this time of March, April, May, who really knows how long of 2020 is a, a time of we're in a collective liminal space together. And few people actually enjoy liminality. Uh, even, even for the introverts out there, you know, where six weeks ago you're like, hey, this is actually pretty great. You're now sick of it. Like, you're, you're done with the quarantine, you're done with the restrictions. All that is, the, the, the niceness of it is gone. And we're in uh, a moment where the familiar is, is being, being taken away, and we're left suspended, wondering what's it going to look like. What I want to do today is look at the theme of wilderness in Scripture. And see it as liminal space. I want to make the claim that for God, the wilderness is the workshop. That God does some of his best work when everything else is stripped away. 
when all the other places of security and comfort and meaning are taken away, God, God does something formative. He does something powerful. He does something essential in his people in the wilderness. And that even for us in our time, in this time, God has a purpose in this wilderness. So what's his, what's his purpose? Let's find out. I want to I start by just kind of recapping the story of Israel. Uh, this is a story, there's a, a lot of pieces at, at play here, but we'll just start in the middle of Exodus. A little backstory: the, the, the Israelites are in, in Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. God raises up Moses to, to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go so that they may worship me. He says this again and again, early part of Exodus. So, so he raises up Moses to, to deliver his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. They're there for a while. Then into a promised land, which is out there. It's somewhere out there. So they're in this vast desert. They get, they, once they're delivered, they're in this vast desert. Uh, they don't know... All they know is that God, there's a promise. There's a promised land. Everything they knew about who they are how to survive, what is expected of them is, is, is stripped away as they leave in the night. They don't, they don't know how to survive under these new arrangements. Right? Does this sound at all familiar? Like, how do I, what am I supposed to do here? How do, I, how do I live and thrive under these new arrangements? Right? Humanity, we've been here before, but we haven't been here before. This is strange. This is unprecedented for us. This is new. And what's interesting is this. We see in this story that God leads them into the wilderness, but he's not in a hurry to get them out. Because he has something to do, he has something he wants to do in them there. If you remember, again, I mentioned this already, what God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh is this. Go and tell him that the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. Okay, so we're going to leave Egypt and then we're going to worship God in the promised land, right? Well, what's interesting, it tells us in Exodus 13, it says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the, way, on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went out of Egypt ready for battle. So we get a glimpse of God's intention here. He was up to something. Just a bit later in Exodus 13, it talks about the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night that led the people into the wilderness. So at the end of this verse here, it says the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. They thought that what they were going to be doing was entering into a land where they had to battle external enemies. But God says, no, I want to bring you into a wilderness where the battle isn't out there, the battle's in here. The battle is your own heart. I'm going to both fight for it and you're going to resist it. You're going to fight. When we'll see all the ways that Israel begins to manifest what's inside themselves as they try to learn who they are in this new territory. And again, we may have seen this even in our time. What's manifesting in us in this new territory? 
That's just exposing what's already been there. It just hasn't had the opportunity to, to surface. So he leads them into the wilderness. Why? Here's why. Because he wanted to teach them something. He wanted to teach them to trust him, to obey him, to listen to his voice. Again, the wilderness is his workshop, and we'll see this play out. He was going to use this trek to demonstrate to his people his trustworthiness. That when everything else is stripped away, you can trust me. When you don't have any other comforts, any other securities, any other familiarities, you can trust me. And that's what God's saying to us today. Far more than just a a place to pass through on our way somewhere else. The wilderness for Israel is the workshop of Israel's becoming. They enter into who they are. This is Mount Sinai for them. This is, this is where they, they, the God gives them the law and they become the people of God within the covenant. They're becoming someone in the wilderness and guys, so are we. We're, there's a formation happening to us right now. For better or for worse. So, so here we are. We're with the Israelites in the wilderness. We haven't yet crossed the Red Sea What's interesting is there's wilderness before the Red Sea. And so we're technically in the wilderness, Exodus 14, and it says, this is the the scene prior to crossing the Red Sea. Exodus 14. They had had left Egypt by night. Well, then they're, they're, they're encamping just in front of the lake, the Red Sea, and they see the Israelite army approaching. And they say to Moses, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. So they're pinned in here. They see, they see a, 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 a huge lake on one side, and then the Egyptian army, over 600 chariots, charging at them on the other side. Moses, surely you've, you've brought us out here to kill us. But then we see, Moses answered the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need be still. So what's their their response? You know, this is is early on. What's their response to the wilderness? It's fear. It's utter, utter fear because if God doesn't come through, this is terrible. If something miraculous doesn't happen, this is, this is t- awful. And we're, we might as well be all dead. Now, if, in context, right, they, they had just seen, we skipped over it, but they had just seen, like, epic miracles. Yeah. Plagues raining down on Egypt, deliverance by night. All, like, like, there's history here. This isn't just out of nowhere. There's history where God's been proving himself. He's been showing himself in miraculous ways. And so, this, this, this response, although we're maybe more familiar with it now, with their saying, oh, you, you brought us out here to die. Often we can look at this and say, well, how could they, wouldn't they trust God? Yeah. Why, why, why wouldn't they just believe, I mean, he already delivered them once, why wouldn't, he just, why wouldn't they just believe that he could do it again? But if this response surprises us, it's because we underestimate the disorienting effects of liminal space and we overestimate our own stability. 
And in fact, things are a little bit unstable right now. And so this response is much, we're much more sympathetic to this response because we feel it in our own souls. And we, we may be far removed from Israel's wilderness wanderings, but we share the same basic human instincts. And so we see their responses surface. Here's, an, here's another scene. This is the first scene that happens after they cross the Red Sea. Now, miracle of all miracles, they cross the Red Sea, the waters part, they walk across on dry land, as just as they're finishing, the waters come back, swallow the Egyptians, and they sing a song of praise, a beautiful song, Exodus 15, they sing hallelujah. But then in terms of the narrative, this is the first scene we see after that. I'll say their response is to be fearful. Here's the next scene, Exodus 15, 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. Now how many people know how long you can typically survive without water? It's like three days. So this isn't like they're just being weak or pathetic. This is at the end of themselves. This is, there's no more strength left. There's no more sustenance left. I am going to die of thirst. We can read that and, and imagine. They came to Mara, but they couldn't drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Mara. It means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? This is an interesting scene here. And it keeps going. And this is, this is what Moses does. Moses cries to the Lord. Moses prays. And the Lord shows him a piece of wood. He throws it into the water and the water becomes fit to drink. Then the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. Their response is to complain. Notice this. In Egypt, and we've skipped over this part, but in Egypt, the first plague to come was turning the waters of the Nile into blood. And it says in, in chapter 7, and, it, and they could not drink it. So the, the, first, the first judgment of God against, against Egypt is to make water undrinkable. They get into the desert. The first thing they find is water that they can't drink. So they're left with an option. Can we trust God? Is God judging us? Can we trust God? We're in the desert. We, can, we have water, but we can't drink it. This is familiar. Can we trust him? And he's, 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 he's putting it before them, almost as a, what, what are you going to, how are you going to respond to this? Moses turns the water sweet, turns a, a curse into a blessing, and, and everyone's able to drink. Soon after that, they enter into this oasis and it's just abundance for a short period. But their, their initial response is, understandably, they're, they're complaining. There's, there's, there's reasons to complain, don't get me wrong. But it's, this, it's, a, it's a posture of complaining, of distrust, of grumbling, which is pretty much muted complaining. Does this sound familiar to any of us? Do you find complaint just rolling off your lip as, as if it was your, your job description for the job that you don't have? Complaint is, is so easy in this season. And if there's one word to summarize Israel's response to hardship in the wilderness, it's complaint. There's this uh, quote from a book that I'm getting a lot of these ideas from called Bearing God's Name. And in it, the author, Carmen Joy Imes, 
says this, Trust is not automatic, and God does not expect it to be. He patiently works on Israel's behalf until they can see he is worthy of their confidence. God's guidance and protection of the Israelites cultivate their trust in him and Moses. The wilderness is his classroom. He has work to do in the Israelites that can only be done in a state of dislocation, in liminal space. And I just read that and I think, man, this is God, God, there's work to be done in our hearts, in our lives, that can only be done in this space of, of stripping away the other securities or the other, the other places that we put our weight so that we, ha- so we have no option but to, but to either fall into, into, you know, oblivion or to put our weight on the rock that's God's faithfulness no matter what comes. Psalm 106 captures kind of a summary of Israel a couple hundred years later looking back on their Exodus experience and just making some comments on it through poetry. It says this, Psalm 106, 7 through 14. When our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his namesake, to make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the hand of the foe, and the hand of the enemy he, from the hand of the enemy, enemy he redeemed them. The waters covered their adversaries, and not one of them survived. Then, then they believed his promises and sang his praise. But soon they forgot what he'd done, and did not wait for his plan to unfold. In the desert they gave in to their craving. In the wilderness they put God to the test. My observation and my fear in some regard is that, is that our, our human tendencies are just showing through in this moment. That in the same way the Israelites quickly forgot God's faithfulness and his, and his, and his power in the wilderness, we're finding ourselves repeating the same patterns of thinking, the same patterns of behavior, the same fear, the same complaint, the same heart posture. The interesting thing about this sort of season is that it serves as almost like a, a free research team on the issues of our heart. It's, it's doing all the work for us. These things are just kind of bubbling up. And now we get to see them and we have an option. Are we going to take that stuff, surrender it to God, or are we going to find some way to justify it and hold on to it and live from it? So, to speak to the same responses that the Israelites have had, I want to just dig into to, to our responses, right? Here's, here, here's our response in many ways. This isn't across the board. I know people are all over the map on this, but one of the, one of the main responses that we've felt in the last six weeks is, is fear. And not, not for no reason, like legitimate fear. There's been loss of jobs. There's been more and more uh, loss of life and the way that, the, that this virus is impacting the economy and the repercussions of it. Is, there's, there's reasons to be afraid. But we, but we, we can find ourselves living in a space of, of fearfulness as if it was the ultimate reality. 
Like the Israelites, we've been fearful. Fear has flooded our world in this hour and we're swimming in it. We've seen God provide. There's history. From, for many of us, there's, just like Israel, there's history here. We're not, not a blank slate. We've seen God provide. But we've never been here. And so we're afraid. Can we trust God in this new territory? When the waters are bitter, can he make them sweet? In many ways, we're in a wilderness now, and, and though there's, <laughs> we still have a lot of luxuries, uh, there's, an, there's, there's this element of things being unknown. And the, and the wilderness is stripping away false securities to train us, to mold us to be a people who trust God and follow after Him alone, who put the full weight of our lives on His faithfulness. How are we doing? Just as an assessment, how are we doing in our, in our fear? That's something I want us to just bring before the Lord. Another response, and this is, this is um, just as prevalent, if not more, is to complain and an added layer to that that I just felt led to mention is, is flippancy. Is, is disregard for the seriousness of the moment. Because we don't know how to handle it. I'm just going to act like it's not, it's not real. I'm just going to, I'm going to disrespect or disregard the seriousness of this uncharted, unfamiliar territory. And while I do that, I'll just complain about everything that's inconvenient about it. This sounds a lot like Israel. This sounds a lot like us. We're, we're, man, we're living in the same pattern. We're living in, that, in those same ruts that's human ability outside of God's grace. And we're stuck in it. To complain is to express dissatisfaction or annoyance about a state of affairs. That's like everything that's happening for so many of us. Things are annoying, things are inconvenient. So what do I put on my lips? I, put, I just express all that in whoever I'm talking to. To be flippant, again, not showing seriousness or a respectful attitude. And so the temptation for us is, is, to, is to just downplay what, what, what our, what our uh, elected officials and our medical professionals are recommending. Um, and I act, like, I act like it's not a big deal. And act like um, somehow we have, we have an edge, you know, on it. Uh, here, here's, here's a quote from a, a really sobering essay that none other than Martin Luther wrote in 1957, or excuse me, 1527, I'm getting my centuries off, uh, when the, the one of dozens and dozens of plagues was sweeping through uh, Europe. The essay is called, whether one may flee from a deadly plague. The question for them was, in, in, Christian, in good Christian consciousness, can I flee? If, if the plague's wrecking this area, can I run away to this other safe area? And Martin Luther says, for, for most people, sure. But for, for the Christian who's called to love and serve their neighbor, no. But here's how you have to think about it. You can't be foolish. You can't test God. He calls, he calls being flippant about the issue testing God. He says this, Others sin on the right hand, 
They're much too rash and reckless, tempting God and disregarding everything that might counteract death and the plague. They disdain the use of medicines. They do not avoid places and persons infected by the plague, but lightheartedly make sport of it and wish to prove how independent they are. They say that if he wants to protect them, he can do so without medicines or our carefulness. This is not trusting God, but tempting him. I hope for those who are, who are, who are, who are tempted in this way, we can, we can at least feel the, so, the sobering effect of his words. He's, he goes on to say, that's like a house is burning down and you don't run out of it. We're, we're put in charge of our bodies to care for us and to care for our neighbor. Being prudent is being loving. And so in this time, right, we're tempted to, to be afraid, we're tempted to complain, we're tempted to be flippant and disregard the, the seriousness of the moment. And we often give in to these temptations, probably on a daily basis for many of us. It's here I want to look, I want to, look to Jesus in the wilderness who resisted temptations that we've succumbed to. So Jesus, at his birth, now this is pretty cool, at his birth, King Herod, now this part isn't cool, but the whole part of it, the whole thing is cool. At his birth, King Herod was enraged by the wise men's, you know, where's the king of the Jews? And so he makes this edict and says, all, all Jewish boys under the age of two need to be killed. And so Jesus and his family, they flee to where? Egypt. There's a bit of a reverse, inside-out Exodus story happening here. After some time had passed, he and his family travel from Egypt, where? To the Promised Land. They travel back through the desert to the land that he had promised them. As Jesus begins his ministry, he passes through the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, where a voice from heaven declares, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, calling back to Israel's crossing of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. After this, he comes to the wilderness, Matthew 4, 1, and it says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, where he reenacts Israel's wilderness wanderings. But instead of grumbling and complaining and giving into fear and giving into his, his, his cravings, he maintains covenant faithfulness all the way. In every way that Israel failed, in every way that we fail in the wilderness, Jesus succeeds. In every way that we fall short of the glory of God, Jesus maintains it. He didn't complain. He wasn't fearful. He wasn't flippant. He was faithful. So here's what we need to do today. We need to look to Jesus. He is the faithful son. If we're looking to him just as an example... We have no hope for change. He's one among many great examples. But he is so much more than an example. He is the source of life. He's not just another Moses. He is God in the flesh who's come to, to retrace Israel's step, to live a fully obedient life for us, for our salvation, that so we could put our faith in him and not in ourselves. Amos 
And in believing in Jesus, we receive his empowering presence that, that can't help but, but change us into the image of Jesus because that's what the Spirit does. That as we behold Jesus, we become more like him because that's the work of the Spirit in our lives. And as we revere God above all else, we re- begin to resemble him in his attributes, in his character, because that's what the Spirit of God does. And so if we want to be strengthened and, and enabled to, to not fear and to not complain and not be flippant, because that's easier than, than dealing with all the repercussions, we need to look to Jesus because he's the source of our strength. He's the source of of our faith. He's the source that allows us to get up in the morning and say, I don't know how to walk this unfamiliar territory, but I know who does. And I can put the full weight of my life onto him. I can put the full weight of my worries, my concerns, my fears, my complaints, which are legitimate for whatever reason, I can put them all onto him and receive his easy yoke, his light burden that can sustain me, that can cause my character to be changed to look like him. The wilderness is the workshop, and we are the raw material. The wilderness is the classroom, and we are the students. The wilderness is the potter's wheel, and we are the clay. The wilderness is the liminal space, and we are becoming someone. Are you you letting God do a work in you in this hour that would actually form you more into the image of Jesus and not less. That's the task for us today, is to yield to the Spirit in this hour and trust that His hands at work in all the unknowns of the moment that we're in and watch as He does something in us to make us better for it. So what I want us to do is just if stand up uh, wherever you're at if you're in your living room, if you're in your bedroom, if you're, in your, if you're able to stand, I want you to stand up. And I want you to, to just take your finger and draw a line, like in the ground, an imaginary line, whether it's you know, in the carpet or in the flooring, just find a, a threshold. Find a threshold. And that threshold represents what you can do in your ability. That threshold represents your fears, your concerns, your complaints, your, your, your temptation to be flippant and disregard all the, all the things that are happening in the moment because maybe it's easier. And maybe that threshold represents putting your faith in Jesus. Yeah. Maybe that threshold represents actually taking the full weight of your life and putting it in Jesus yeah. to forgive you to to make you whole, to actually do something in your life that that you couldn't even dream of. Whatever that threshold represents in your life, I want you just to step over it. Let's all take that step together right now. Father, we come before you. We swallow our pride. We ask for your grace to come and meet us. Whatever you've been exposing in us this morning, God, we've stepped over the threshold. We've given it up to you. We take it in our hands and say, here's this, Jesus. Here's my life. We lay it at your feet. 
We ask for you to take it, God. We take on your easy yoke that says, do not fear. We take on your light burden that says, do not be afraid. I am with you. You can trust me. Father, we put the full weight of our lives on Jesus. We declare that we will not complain, we will not fear, we will not be flippant, we will not cave into our cravings. But even if we do, even if we're unfaithful in whatever way, big or small, we trust in your faithfulness. For even when we're unfaithful, you remain faithful. For that is who you are. So we put the full weight of our life onto your faithfulness this morning, Jesus. And we thank you for it. In your name. Amen.